Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. This is our last sermon in the book of Colossians in the series. I know the email said, and the bulletin says verses 7 through 8, but it's actually 7 through 18. So, sorry. It's a typo. My wife proofread it, so it's her fault. <laughs> she just should have known what I was going to preach. So it's verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter because, and if you read the first two verses, it's a similar theme of naming people and mentioning their work and their relationship. So this is the last sermon in Colossians, so it's a quick review of the book of Colossians, or really the letter of Colossians. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in what is now modern Turkey. Back then it would have been East Asia. To the people called the Colossians. And he wrote it to fight back against some false teachers who were trying to put rules and false worship in the place of Christ. So in chapter 1, the first section of the letter, Paul lays out one of the clearest descriptions and explanations of the supremacy of Christ, the greatness of Christ, and the greatness of his work. So he starts off with saying, here's who Jesus is. He is God. He is man. And here's what he did. He reconciled all of us together by the cross, by his death and his resurrection. Then the next section, about chapter 2, he says, since Christ is supreme and the king, you are free from the world. You're free to follow Christ. So as we submit to the kingship of Christ, we're free from other men's opinions. And the false teachers have been trying to use uh, works and systems and rules to create holiness. And Paul says, no, follow Christ. You are free, and that's who's going to change you. Then in the third chapter, in the third section, you see Christ's lordship in the community, in the relationships. And it talks about how we relate to one another, how families should relate, how we worship together as a way to live out Christ's kingship. And he dictates what those relationships look like. And then finally, in this last chapter, this last part, he gets very practical. So practical that he names people's names. That's pretty practical, isn't it? Even I don't get that practical. I don't call people's names out during the sermon. I can, if you'd like. Just raise your hand if you feel like it's being applied to you, and I'll call your name out as an example. <laughs> you remember Brother Tanner? He, he always said, if you need someone to call on, he, he always tell me. You can use my name. I could be your example, which made me not want to do it even more. I'm like, you're probably not the problem if you're willing to be called out. But that's what Paul does here. He calls out people by name. And what he does is he says, under the lordship of Christ, because Paul was an apostle, which means he was hand-chosen, face-to-face by Christ to represent Christ to us in a very unique way. He got the words from Christ himself to give to us, and that's what we call the Bible. So this letter is Paul's letter, but more importantly, it's God's letter. So what Paul does in this ending, though he deals with people that we don't know who they are and don't know much about them, he's showing us what a follower of Christ looks like. Paul was a faithful follower of Christ. He said, 
here's what the church and sort of the ministry looks like with some practical examples. So what we see in this last section is how ministry teams should work. One of the biggest things here is how Paul lays out the team mentality. So let's read in verse 7. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about who you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, that's not Jesus Christ, that's another Jesus. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in her house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Just a point, that last verse. So, Paul didn't write his own letters. He dictated them to a scribe who wrote it, and then would, and that was common practice back then. But to make sure everyone knew that it was Paul, he would write out the last. So what he's saying here, the salutation by my own hand, Paul, he wrote that sentence. So when they received it, they didn't maybe recognize the handwriting of the letter, but they recognized Paul's handwriting at the end. So it's sort of like a signature. If you wrote a letter, if you typed up a letter, then signed your name at the end. That's what Paul's doing here. To show that it's authentic. And that's important for us because... If it's fake, why are we reading it? But Paul signed it, and people would have recognized his handwriting, and if it had been a fake letter, there would have been outrage that someone would have forged Paul's handwriting. And so we trust it because of the internal evidence that it was actually Paul's letter. So when Paul wants to say, here's what it looks like to take the information in this letter and put it into practice, he says you need to have a group of people to help you. He says, I have a team, and he names them. And we see four things about what ministry looks like, what a team should, what, what you need to have in order to have a Christ-like team or church or group of people to minister with. First of all, love, diversity, unity, and perseverance. Now, because Christ is creator, and this is his model for the church, this is going to have a lot of practical implications for your secular work. So since Christ created all of us, and this, this is primarily for the church, but when you go to work, he created all those people too. So if you are a, an employee or a boss or you have a, a workplace, 
or you cooperate with other people around other things, there's going to be some practical application about how you can have a healthy work environment. If you are leading a team, you should listen to this. This has some practical applications. But primarily, it's for those of us who are involved in gospel ministry, the church gathered around the gospel. The first thing Paul says that we see here with Paul is that in order to have a healthy ministry, you have to love each other. That seems obvious, doesn't it? If it was as obvious as it should be, the Bible wouldn't need to be written. But look what he says. Tychicus, a beloved brother. Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. Luke, the beloved physician. When you have a group of people that you're working with in a church, in a ministry team, in a pastoral team, you need to have personal connections with them. Paul is saying, if you don't know their names, you're unhealthy. If you don't have this sort of personal, face-to-face connection, you can't have a healthy team. This is why the church needs to know the names of the other church members. That's why we work on putting a, a directory out. This is why we call people by name. If you don't know people's names, in other words, if you don't have this sort of direct relationship with people in your group, you don't have a biblical group. And when he says, when the, we talk about connections, he didn't just know their name. He was physically in the same location with them. He says uh, in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Just right there, they were chained together. Verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nephthys in the church. The word church means assembly. If you're not assembling together, you can't have a healthy group. There's been a rise in the past few years of the sort of online church, the digital church. As we all know, as the Internet becomes more pervasive and things like YouTube and uh, Facebook and more social media, you can connect a lot over the Internet. And many pastors are saying that's the future of the church. We sort of part-time connect together, but really we use the online media to get more people together. But that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is greet the church that meets in a house. When this epistle is read among you, to assemble, you have to be together. You can't assemble by yourselves at home. There's a joke about introverts that says we're going to have an introvert's party. Everyone gathered by themselves at their home at this time. Introverts are like, yeah, that's my kind of party. But that's what's happening with the church is we're all going to gather at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, but you're just going to be by yourself, and you're just going to watch it. That doesn't work. That's not biblical. What's biblical is that you get together, you assemble together, you know each other's names, you have a physical connection. God saved both soul and body. When Jesus came down, he didn't come down as a spirit. He came down with a body, and he shared life with people. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, these are my team members who I know, who I love, who I'm with. So they're together, and that builds affection. You see, there's a lot of teams that are only together for practical purposes, but they don't actually care about each other. 
There are a lot of churches like that. There's some of that in our church. We all believe the same thing, so we're together, but there's no actual feelings for each other. Can we say of each other, beloved, faithful, fellow servant? Can we name names and say, this is my beloved church member who I care about, who I have a feeling, who I have strong feelings of bonding with? So often churches aren't healthy, they don't know why. And they want a program or they want a system or they want a plan. But you can't plan love. You can't plan feelings. They grow. And so a healthy church intentionally gets together so they can grow closer, so they can develop feelings, so they can be bound by love. And what does this do? Look in verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Now, the word comfort there is is actually a medical term. It would be what the doctor would say when you get pain medication and the pain goes away. That's called comfort. That would be the word that they would use. So in the Christian life, especially as you minister and the more full-time or the more you're dedicated, the more problems arise. Problems that weigh on you. Burdens that weigh on you. How do you relieve those burdens? One way is to get away from them, is to separate from people. But that's not the ministry here. That's not the gospel way. The other way is to gather people around you who can help bear those burdens. That's what Paul's saying here. He said, these who love me walk alongside to relieve the pain. That's hard work. But that's what a community does. They learn about the problems, and then they help bear the problems. And so when Paul says, I have a successful ministry that's growing, and you realize how successful Paul's ministry was? It's here. It's us. He has the perfect model because he started with the other disciples the spread of the ministry. The spread of all the churches that we all know came out of this. So he's saying to love someone is to bear their burdens, to relieve their pain, to comfort them. That's what the church does. So we need to intentionally find out how we can bear one another's burdens, which means we have to listen, which also means we have to share, which means we're vulnerable. So it goes back to finding people who love you, who are connected with you. But all of this means when you start to open up to people, what happens? There's risk involved. You see, we want a safe community where, like, first everybody love me, and then I'll commit. First I'll be accepted completely, and everybody's bearing my burdens, then I'll open up. But that's not what Paul does. Look at the names he mentions here, two names. Mark, cousin of Barnabas, and Demas. Verse 10, Mark, and verse 14, Demas. Now, these are interesting because there's a history around these from other places in the Bible. So these are part of his team. But Mark, about 10 or 12 years prior to this book, had such a sharp disagreement with Paul that they couldn't work together anymore. They separated. So Paul and Barnabas, if you know anything about Paul's journey, he started out with Barnabas. They were team members. They went and planted churches. And Mark went with them. But then, I don't know exactly what happened, but Mark got on Paul's nerve so much that Barnabas had to leave. 
with Mark. They effectively split the missions team in half because they couldn't get along. That's pretty sharp, isn't it? It's not just they didn't just have a, just a disagreement. They couldn't stand to be with each other. Right? I, I don't know how you would apply this to our lives. But look what happens. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about who you receive instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Something changed. Paul said, I don't like Mark. I don't want to work with him. But then he was willing at some point to open up again and receive Mark back into his fellowship. And we see here that Mark was one of the people that he names in the Bible for the rest of eternity to say, Mark comforted me. He didn't cut him off forever. He opened himself up. He risked letting Mark back in so that Mark could be a comfort to him. Christianity means opening yourself up to people who will hurt you, who you forgive, and you sort of give them a second chance or a third or a fourth. That's what Paul's telling us. And that's great that Mark came back, isn't it? Like, oh, it worked out. Look at this other name, Demas. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greets you. But Demas is mentioned again later. And when Paul was on his mission, he's on the mission frontier. It's lonely out there. He's planting churches in places that don't have churches. Demas forsook him, the Bible says. It said, Demas forsook me for this present world. Paul says, we're building the kingdom. We're Christ's messengers. We're the first messengers in the world to preach Christ to this area. And Demas says, I can't do this anymore. I've got my own problems to take care of. And he abandoned Paul on the mission field. That's it. But yet God told Paul to write Demas' name down. Why? To warn us. You need to let people like Demas in when they seem to be following the scriptures. But get ready because they're going to abandon you. They're going to forsake you. And in a biblical ministry, you can't protect yourself enough. Look what Jesus did. He gathered 12 people, hand-picked 12 people, and one of them betrayed him. For three years, Jesus ministered to Judas, preached him, discipled him, shared his home and his meals with him, and, Jesus betray- and Judas betrayed him. Do you think we're going to be any different? Paul, the greatest apostle, works with Demas, disciples him, and Demas Demas forsakes him. That's going to happen to us. We're going to bring people in, and we're going to disciple them, and we're going to help them, and they're going to forsake us. And that's what God tells us to do. You love people for their sake, not for ours. You see, that's what love is. It reaches out to people. It doesn't protect. When you love someone, you risk things for them. When you love yourself, you protect yourself. And so what Paul is saying is, I love these men. I love this group. And so I risk things for them, and I get hurt by them. And so our church has to do the same thing. Sanyu Aralu says, This belief that people can change must characterize our pastoral ministry if we want to be relevant to our society, which is so often indifferent and apathetic. There's a great need for the body of Christ to accept and absorb into the fold of Christ those considered outsiders. That's what Paul's saying here. The world 
cuts toxic people off. It rejects those. And then it is too cautious after this. I'm not going to let that happen again. But the church, the body of Christ, doesn't do that. It loves people. And as a result, we are different than everybody else because of our love one for another. So he loves these people, and we as a ministry team, as a church, must love each other. But look at the, another point. Look at the diversity. Now, when we read this, every word was chosen by God. That's what we believe. Every single word was chosen specifically by God, which means of all the things that Paul could have wrote, he wrote these things, which means these are the things that we need to know about. He names these people specifically to teach us something. These people are very different from each other, ethnically, socially, economically, geographically. They're very different. How are they working together? We look at Jesus and his disciples. You go through that list, you've got a terrorist, you've got a tax collector, you've got two guys who are called Sons of Thunder because they were so abrasive. Peter, who literally tried to cut someone's head off at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus brought all of these people together. And Paul has brought all these people together for the sake of the kingdom. He said in verse 11, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So he brought diversity together, not for the sake of diversity, for the sake of the kingdom. This is important because sometimes we can use people to make ourselves look good by saying, look how many different kind of people I'm friends with. Look how many different kinds of people in our church. Aren't we great? But Paul says they're diverse for the kingdom, which means God wants people who are diverse because of the gifts that he gave them to help the ministry, not to prove a point, not to make a statement, to build the kingdom. You see, when you bring people in because of their differences, simply because of their differences, it's patronizing. It's saying, you really can't offer anything, but you look good in a picture, so you can be a part of our group. That's patronizing. What Paul is saying is you bring in diversity because every different person brings something to the table to build the kingdom. So the focus of diversity is not diversity. It's kingdom. It's the gospel. And so we promote diversity because God tells us we need all sorts of people to spread the gospel. And so again, in the end, we bring these people, Paul brought these people together and we follow his example so that the kingdom can grow, so that Christ can be proclaimed, so that we can reach out further. And look, look at the kind of people he brings together. Verse 11, he names three people. He says, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. Now that's a way of saying Jewish. Why did he mention this? Because in the next, he names three people who are not of the circumcision. They're Gentiles. What God is telling us is that Paul intentionally had people from one cultural and ethnic group and another cultural and ethnic group, and they brought them together. Now, we think we've got problems. Try a thousand years of ethnic divide. That's Jew-Gentile. Jews go back to Abraham. 2,000 years before this was written. For 2,000 years, Jewish people said, we're different than everybody else. Gentiles, 
despised Jews. Thousands of years of division, Paul says, we're done with that. And he makes a point of mentioning it. Why? Because he's saying nothing can stop the gospel. And a gospel ministry can overcome even thousands of years. So if you're involved, if you're confronted with the division in America, and sometimes it's like nothing's going to change. When it seems like it's going to change, then it goes back. Paul's telling us it can change. The gospel can overcome any ethnic or cultural divide. Any. If it can come, overcome Jew and Gentile, it can overcome ours. Amen. And so what Paul's saying here is he, he makes a point to say, I've got different culture groups here. He makes a point of saying it because that's important. It's important to know how powerful the gospel is, how powerful the church is. But it's not just ethnic groups. It's not just cultural groups. It's also social and economic groups. Look at this in verse 9, with Onesimus. Now, if you were here a few months ago, we preached the book of Philemon. Philemon was Onesimus' master. Onesimus was a, is, was a slave. But look how he talks with him. He says, here's Tychicus, a beloved and faithful minister and fellow servant, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. Where's the distinction? There is none. Paul's saying, in this church, how much money you have doesn't matter. Your social status doesn't matter. He intentionally has people from different social groups brought together to serve equally. That takes a lot of work. I don't think we realize how hard it is for a slave and a non-slave to work together in this culture. What's happened so often with conservative Christian churches in America is that they're built on the middle class. They're made up of the middle class because that's easy to get along with people in the middle class. But Paul says, no, I want people from the bottom rung of society to come alongside me and work. In order for that to happen, you have to intentionally reach out. You have to intentionally make a place for people in different social categories. Otherwise, you don't have a healthy ministry. See where the love comes back in? What drives you to do this? Love for people. But also, it's not just social class, it's not just ethnic class, it's not just racial class, it's also gender. Look at verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus. Now, there's a few translations out there, and they're not going to agree. Some translations read, and the church that is in his house. And other translations read, the church that is in her house. So I don't usually do this, but we're going to get a little bit of textual criticism. There are thousands of copies of the original language Bible. It's written in Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek. Thousands of copies that go back thousands of years. It's the most well-attested book in the world. More than any other ancient book. So can you trust that we have the words? Yes, we have thousands of copies. Some go back to within the lifetime of the people reading it. They aren't late copies. So, for instance, the Koran, in the 8th century, the guy who was in charge of all the uh, Islamic countries, burned every copy of the Koran except for one. So in about 700 AD, there was only one copy of the Koran, and every other copy was copied from that one copy. You see the problem, right? What if that one copy had a mistake? 
The Bible, our Bible, on the other hand, has thousands of copies that go back to the first and second century. And it multiplied from there. So our text is reliable. But there are differences between the copies. Small differences. Very small differences. But here's one of them. Some copies say his house, and some copies say her house. Now, in the big picture, it doesn't really matter that much. Our faith will be the same either way. But how do we decide which one? One of the principles of, of deciding between these two groups of texts, two different words, is which one would be harder to copy? Because easy mistakes, right, they, 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 they duplicate themselves. It's easy to make that mistake. But hard things usually are true. In a patriarchal society, scribes who are men, they were all men, to write down her instead of his would have been extremely difficult because men were at the top. So to accidentally say her house instead of his house is unthinkable. And so that's why almost everyone agrees that it should say her house. There are Greek manuscripts that say her house because to intentionally write her house in would have graded on the scribes. It would have made them very uncomfortable to, to write in her house. So this is not a statement of faith. We don't have to agree on this. But I believe, and most scholars believe, that it should say her house, which is important here. That means that Paul is intentionally naming a woman as part of the ministry. Now, we don't need to just have this. Paul names a dozen other women through his other letters. So even if we don't agree on this, we know that Paul intentionally includes a dozen names of women who are integral to his ministry. Names like Phoebe and Junia, uh, Priscilla, and here I believe Nymphus. Making a point that a healthy ministry has women who are leaders. The church that is in her house. Now she may not be the pastor, but she's a prominent member. That's what Paul said a healthy church looks like. That there are women who are well-trained, who are equipped, who are integral to the ministry. Intentional gender diversity. To only have half of the church equipped is a very, very unhealthy church. If you do not equip women to rise up and lead and teach, you cannot keep the scriptures. Let the older women teach the younger women. That means the older women, the teacher needs to be just as equipped as the pastor. It's not sort of like, well, the pastor needs sound doctrine, but these teachers don't. Of course not. Well, the pastor needs to disciple correctly, but these women teachers don't. Of course not. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's, he's just dropping this name to say gender diversity is important because and he says elsewhere, there's neither male nor female in Christ. We all have equal access, which means we should all be equally discipled. In our day and age, it's, it's easier to do that than any other age before this. We are the least patriarchal society, I believe, that has ever been a Christian group, which means if we're not doing it, we've intentionally failed. So when Paul was writing this, to have a woman like Priscilla would have been just, would have been shocking in a patriarchal society where the men literally own the women. 
And yet he said, this is what a healthy church looks like. So for us now in sort of the age of liberation, if we're not doing it, we've chosen to just disregard the biblical model. And I think it's because it's easier to ignore something than to actually pursue it. It's difficult for the men to admit that women are their equals. And it's difficult for women to engage in discipleship. And so what happens is the men say, we don't want to, and the women say, it's too hard. And then we have an unhealthy church. So let's follow Paul's ministry, Christ's ministry. Christ had many women who supported him, who traveled with him, who helped him. And encourage equality and teaching and discipleship. And so have a church that can do the same thing that this church did, which was spread throughout the world. Diversity creates health because it brings in gifts. C.S. Lewis says, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. The more diversity, the more growth. This applies mostly directly to Christ. Each one of us is going to see a little, see Christ a little bit differently than everyone else, a different perspective on the same person. And so when we share together, we all learn about Christ better. When we learn each other, we share and we all grow and we all learn more and we all become more healthy. But the more divisive, the more uniform we are, the more unhealthy we are. But diversity brings another problem. If everyone's so different, how do they get along? More diversity means more problems. You know why there's so little diversity in America? Something like 95% of churches look the same. Because there's so many churches to choose from. And when you want to get engaged into a community, you want as few, you don't want barriers to engagement. And so you shop around until you find a church that's easy to be a part of. And that usually means they look and act just like you. Because that's easy. And then you can get involved. What Paul is saying is you intentionally pursue diversity, but there's got to be something binding you together. So what is it? Where's the unity in this passage? Look at verse 7. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, one who's, who is of you, a bondservant of Christ. Look at verse 17. And to say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. What's the binding thing here between Jews, Gentiles? It's Christ. See, Christ does not bound by an economic status, by racial status, by social or cultural status. So if you draw close to Christ, there's your bonding moment. Do we assemble in groups based on our gospel relationship or on our shared interest? Do we develop Sunday school classes based around the gospel and Christ or around people that are easy to get along with? You see the danger that America has developed with with groups that are affinity-based? Affinity-based means they're like you, and so you were with them. But what about the gospel? How do you get along with people who are not like you? You focus on Christ, and then you get along with other people who focus on Christ. And so what binds the church together is the unity in Christ. That's what the whole book of Colossians has been talking about. Christ, who is God, comes down and becomes man rules over everything, saves us, dies on the cross to unite us with God. That's all you need. You don't need any more unity than that. 
If there's not enough unity around Christ, you don't understand who Christ is. You don't understand the power of the gospel. And so we are banking our entire church ministry on the fact that we can get along just preaching the gospel. We're betting that that's enough. We call that faith. Faith that Jesus is enough to bind us together. That's everything for us. That promotes diversity, but it also promotes unity. And what's, how's that practically given to us? Look at verse 16. Sort of saying, you know, let's all unite around Jesus. That sounds great, but what's that look like? Verse 16. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. How does everybody get along? They read the same letter. They follow the same book. How do we follow Christ? By getting together and reading the epistle. That's what this is. Epistle means letter. We all get together and we read the letter to the Colossians, and some of us say, I don't like this. But then we say, Jesus is in charge. So we're all going to follow this, whether we like it or not, and we're going to learn to get along by following Christ in the Word. So what does it mean to be a Christ-honoring, Christ-following church? It means biblical preaching. It means biblical teaching. It means a statement of faith that we gather around that says what the Bible says. And when people start saying things that the Bible doesn't say, we say, thanks for your opinion. That's great. But I don't have to agree with you. But when the Bible says it, we follow it. And so unity is not built around racial, social, ethnic, economic, interest. It's built around Christ in the Word. And what that creates is a group of people who come together to follow Christ in the Word. And the Bible calls that a church. The assembly. Church means literally gathered together. They assemble together. That's why we assemble on Sunday morning, together. So that we can follow Christ in the Word. So he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in her house. Read it among you. See, it is read in the church of Laodiceans that you likewise see the connection between all the churches. How do all these different churches get along? Because they ask, do you read the Bible? Yes. Do you follow Christ? Yes. Okay, we're together. We're brothers. If you separate from a Bible-believing, Christ-following Christian, you're wrong. If you cut off another church that's reading, teaching, preaching the Bible, and believing in Christ, that's wrong. That's unnecessary disunity. Now, we don't have to agree with everything they're doing. But if they believe the Bible's true, they're following it, and they trust Christ as Savior, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. He said, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, Nymphus, the church. So we reach out to other Christians. We gather together. We reach out to other churches based on Christ and the Bible. Faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to the Word. And we build friendships around that. You see, a healthy church will have people who connect, who have no other reason to connect. They, they shouldn't be friends, but they are. Jonathan Holmes says, Biblical friendship exists when two or more people... So biblical friendship, what Paul's talking about here. When two or more people, bound together by a common faith in Jesus Christ, pursue Him and His kingdom with intentionality and vulnerability. 
Rather than serving as an end in itself, biblical friendship serves primarily to bring glory to Christ, who brought us into friendship with the Father. It is indispensable to the work of the gospel in the earth. You see, Jesus is not like us. He wouldn't fit into our groups. He was perfect. He worked harder. He talked better. He was more intellectually capable. He was better with money. But what did he do? He says, I'm here to save you. And he made friends with a bunch of people who were terrible. Read the Gospels. These people were terrible. And Jesus was friends with them. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm doing the same thing. I'm friends with Demas, who will betray me. Because I'm not really here for the friendship. I'm here for the gospel. And friendships lead towards gospel. And so what we say is in our church, we go out of our way, we should go out of our way to make friends with other believers who are not like us, to emphasize the gospel. What do your friends look like? Do they look like you? That's natural. But we're talking about supernatural. So trust the gospel and start making connections with people who do not look like you, who do not act like you, who do not spend money like you, who don't do the same things as you, who are not the same age as you, based on your shared faith in Christ. And if the Bible is true, and if Jesus died on the cross and rose again, it'll work. But if he didn't die on the cross and he didn't rise and the Bible's not true, it won't work. So we have a choice now. Do we believe that Jesus is enough or do we need something else? Paul believed that he was enough. And look at the overriding theme here. Suffering and perseverance. Paul says, remember my chains. Bond servants, fellow prisoners, they suffered together. Why did they suffer together? Because they believed the gospel. And a healthy church and a healthy friendship and healthy team that doesn't suffer together won't work. They persevered through the suffering because they were committed. They were committed to Christ first. It says here they are a servant in the Lord, a bond servant of Christ. They said, I'm going to follow Jesus if it kills me. I'm going to make friends with people in this church if it kills me. Because Jesus said to. They ministered together. They ministered to the people. It says Epaphras, who is a bondservant of Christ, and as, because he's a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. These churches didn't work out. Do you know that? Laodicea, it didn't turn out to be a good church. The last book of the Bible has a warning to Laodicea telling them how bad they are. Why didn't Epaphras give up on them? Because he loved Jesus. If Jesus is not the motivation for your friendships, they won't work. If Jesus is not the motivation for this church, this church won't work. Unless we follow Christ who never fails us, we can't be friends with people who will fail us. So look to Christ and serve each other. Christ died for you. That's all you need. Now you can reach out to others. And so a healthy church, a healthy group of friends, a healthy ministry will devote themselves to Christ and as a result, devote themselves to each other in a way that the world cannot understand because it's supernatural. But if Jesus is who he says he is, 
If he did what he said he did, it'll work. Let's pray.